this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and just because you've played a surgeon in a movie it doesn't mean that you actually are hello and welcome to the return of the film file yes we're back the both of us the dynamic duo the glitter twins you name it you've got me and andy andy has returned Yay. from surgery <laughs> yes it all went well i was in surgery on tuesday this week um as those have been following the social media and listening to like the extended podcast versions will know and it was keyhole surgery and i was the first one admitted to um the operation theater so half past eight in the morning i checked in at the hospital at seven o'clock half past eight in the morning i was sent to theater the anesthetics were fantastic because they do the they do the first the two, the first two ones which make you drowsy and the first one went in it was like i don't really feel anything and then the light starts like moving up and down ahead of me and it's just like oh something's happening and then they did the second one of them can't remember a thing after that <laughs> so, so they, oh, they wow. didn't even get as far as the countdown with the third like injection going like countdown from 10 nope i was out and next thing i knew i'm just getting woken up by them going it's all gone well you're going back up to the ward huh what how, how long was how long was the surgery um i was well half past eight i went into anesthetics and i was back up on the ward by about quarter past 11. oh blimey all painful and sore as you'd imagine and yeah. by five o'clock i was allowed to go home because uh i was shown perfect signs of health except for the pain and agony that i'm in which i'm still in pain and agony because when you have it, keyhole surgery is the least intrusive surgery that you can get you know, if it had been like full open surgery, I'd have been in the hospital for at least two, three days. With keyhole surgery, it's small, tiny incisions. However, the one that they use to put the camera in, and if you're a bit squeamish, skip ahead 15 seconds. <laughs> they sliced my belly button, and it's the most painful slice that you can imagine. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, I bet. When I took the first lot of dressings off and I saw it, because I knew that they'd slice up above or below, but I didn't realize that they might actually slice through. Oh, ah, um, right. Oh, okay. So... Well, if you uh, if you are squeamish, you can rejoin us. <laughs> even though I don't know how you would have missed that, <laughs> and why you should have missed it. Yeah, it's funny. I, if you remember, about a year ago, I had surgery. I was on the second part of some eye surgery, and and the the longest part was actually the waiting. Mm. I spent longer in the waiting ward than I did in the surgery. I mean, in twenty minutes, it was over. Yeah, phenomenal. That's why I, the cryptic opener is if you've played a surgeon doesn't mean you're actually one because i did offer if you've checked andy's uh, uh facebook feed i did offer that i would i would jump in i've seen a lot of movies i was a big fan of mash and er and i and i promised to uh, i would i would jump in and help but apparently they didn't need us i've seen lots yeah. of it I, I, it doesn't mean that you're qualified yeah but it's good to have you back so we've had a bit of a break last week we did a fill-in where we talked about the sad passing of William Friedkin, a true Hollywood maverick. Yeah. Uh, if you listen to the radio show, then we had a, a musical uh, version, not like a musical version where I burst into song. <laughs> I mean, that's we just had... me on a regular basis. That would be like the Star Trek episode I, I've uh, I watched recently. Oh, that was um, so good. <laughs> and, the fame, and the classic Buffy one. Uh, but no, we, we played uh, tracks of our, some of, well, some of my favorite movie themes. I really enjoyed it. It was a hard, hard show to put together because there were so many great movie themes mm. that you can you can come up with. And um, it's a shame that um, we can't do it on the podcast and play more music. But 
if next time we come up with this, we'll we'll point you in the direction of No Barriers and you can listen to uh, the musical version of this show, which again, I must point out, it's not me singing or Andy singing. I mean, I don't, don't say that. People want to hear us sing. They, Maybe they do. They might. Maybe we should do a musical episode. That's it. We'll, we'll just sing all of our reviews. <laughs> Since Buffy, everyone's done one. It, it sounds great. Um, the show's four years old. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. August 2019, the first episode went out. Was it really? It was about the 18th of August that it went out, so we're recording two days after the anniversary of it. Four years. Yeah, four years. It's, this uh, is one of the longest relationships I've had. I mean, it's, it's pretty good. We're, <laughs> we're doing well. We'll get engaged, For those who know we'll get me. engaged soon. <laughs> For those who know me, that makes absolutely perfect sense. Uh, wow, that's incredible. And, and thank you to you, dear listeners for sticking with us and growing and being part of the film file family when we do say film file family uh we we actually mean it we are blessed that you listen to the show honored in fact there are so many choices of podcasts about movies that you can listen to but you stick with with me and andy and it it means an awful lot to us and uh, please just just help expand our audience because Mm. uh, we can only do so much on the limited budget that we've got but if you can tell all your friends, tell fellow film geeks, um, spread the word on social media, help us build up our listenership because we love doing this and we'd love to do much, much more, as I said many, many times. I have a great idea for a live show when Andy's back on his feet. And remember, whatever service you listen to us on, if there's a rating system, give us five stars because that really helps the numbers and the, yeah. it, it, it helps the visuals. You know, the more people that give it five stars, the more chance that it pops up into the recommended feeds for other people who are listening to similar things. And that helps us expand and grow. And so we can do bigger and better things. I'll tell you what, if you can grow as an individual, grow our audience by 100 people, we'll come and do the film file from your house. <laughs> there's, there's a threat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come over and we'll do the film file from your house. I mean, that, that'd actually do you remember when the Foo fun, Fighters did that? That'd be fun, just going around to someone's house, having something to eat around the table and having a microphone and just talking film. Yeah, that's what we'll do. If you can you can prove to us, you can grow, our, or you've grown our audience by uh, uh, another hundred, you've got a hundred friends into the show, we'll come and do the film file <laughs> from your house. Except, with the exception is, we can't get to Utah and we can't get to Australia. Unless someone's paying Unless... for Unless. If someone else is paying for the tickets and accommodation, we're all then for it. We will be there. <laughs> Trust me, we'll be there. This is this is where this is where we get the Osmonds getting in touch. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, the Foo Fighters used to do it. They used to turn up at people's kitchens and garages and play. We could do it. Rev does in Sheffield from well, Rev, there you Rev go. and the Bakers. He regularly just does. A, I want to do a house party, and he'll just turn up and play at whoever he picks out of the people who respond. Marvelous. The precedent has been set. We could be the film version of Reverend of the Makers. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so last time we spoke, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned our social challenge. And that social challenge was, do you think, in your humble opinion, that there is a book or a series of books that should have been adapted into a film or TV series, miniseries? And Andy, how did we do it? It seems such a long time ago. Well, in, in relative terms, it was. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of bites this time. And I'm, not, I'm not sure why. I, I mean, I think over on Twitter we're getting less bites because people are getting really disgruntled Ooh, over there. Tell me about it. There oh, goes. A, there's a rant for another time. I mean, I just want to. I have to quickly just say the whole suggestion that he's going to remove the ability to block people. Really? Yeah. That this is terrible. Anyway, uh, we did get a few responses though. Um, over on Facebook, 
Lindsay's story. It's not a book as such, but she read a short graphic novel once online called Alina by Jorge Jaramillo. Um, It's a weird, quite graphic horror story, which I always thought could be fleshed out and made into a film. I thought at the time of reading, Michael Fassbender could play the main character of Carl. Never read it. Might have to track that one down. Stephen Blaine Young also said, so the obvious fantastical choice for me would be The Silmarillion, directed by Peter Jackson, but with more prep time so he can get it right, as that would mean he'd be the first person to direct a trilogy of trilogies. The second choice would be Raymond E. Feist's Magician Trilogy. Um, a couple of good choices. Silmarillion would need a lot of work to make it into some coherent kind of structure for a film because even book readers find that one a struggle to get through. You've got to really be immersed into Tolkien lore in order to pick up on the structure. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be nice. I don't think it'll ever happen because we saw how tired of the franchise Jackson was with The Hobbit, shall we say? Yeah. The, after, the, the result of it was like a film that a director has clearly put in out in order to just get it done and get up, get away and do other things. But never say never. Even if he's just producing, might be okay. Over on Mastodon, we had a response from Charles 22A203, who said, they will be eventually, but King's Dark Tower books. And also, Matt Stover's Acts of Cain series is effing wild. Uh, never read the Matt, uh, Matt Stover's Acts of Cain series, but I have read the Dark Tower books, and yes, we are hoping that we'll eventually get to see that properly brought to the screen, not like that film from five or six years ago. I've not read the books. And to be honest, I didn't see the movie either. We know that Flanagan still has plans for the Dark Tower series, which he wants to interject with films and series, films and series. And even recently on Kingcast, as pointed out by Charles 22803, he had very positive things to say on how that's been developing. So maybe once all these strike action shutdowns are finished we might start to see some momentum on stephen king's dark tower it for a stephen king fan yeah you've never read the books i do urge you to, i think you'll get a lot from the books okay because he weaves in so many of his other books and other characters not particularly in the first book first book is more or less standalone but over the series it starts to build and develop and grow to become basically the definitive stephen king library over on spotify carl hodkin for me it would be the 90s kid book kids book series Animorphs by Catherine Applegate. It did have a TV series in the late 90s, but only ran for two seasons and then got cancelled by Nickelodeon in 1999. So that's a a childhood remembrance one, uh, which I'm sure that we've all got childhood remembrance ones, things that we read when we were kids that would go, oh, oh, why are they not making that? I'm going to throw one in because uh, I, I highly recommend this book. And I think, while I don't think it's a movie, I think it would make a great uh, limited series like a, a hbo series and that's the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay by american author michael shaban yeah, whose name you might recognize he was one of the script writers the original script writer on spider-man 2 back in the day and it's a fantastic book so it's a chunky book it tells the story of two jewish comic creators who escape to new york during and after world war ii and become a part of the golden age of comic books and they create uh, a character called the escapist who's an escape artist who had a follow-up comic strangely enough on with dark horse and it's a fantastic fantastic book Uh, basically it's it's stanley and jack kirby in many ways Mm -hmm. but it's it's uh, an interesting look at uh, how the how the comic industry came to life 
after the war and you can see all the all sort of references to people like Bob Kane, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, uh, Will Eisner. And there are a few sort of major minor appearances like guest appearances on people like Salvador Dali and Orson Welles in it. It's a, it's an awesome book. So it's a great book about the, the comic book industry, which is we've never seen it told like this. My I've got a few suggestions. First one. Now, we have had earlier parts of the book series, and we've currently got one of the earlier parts of the book series playing out via a marvellous TV series. It's the Vampire Chronicles series, and I would love them to get as far as the fifth book, Memnock the Devil. Because Memnock the Devil, is it, it basically weaves every aspect of religion, heaven versus hell, our perspective of what the evolution of man and vampires was, is all played out as the devil is tempting Lestat uh, throughout the whole book and showing him through the history and the evolution of man and vampires. It's a marvellous book. You need Tales of the Body Thief, the book before it, in order to completely get the story. Or on film, we've only had Interview with a Vampire and we had the rather terrible Queen of the Damned. Oh, yes, it certainly was. But on TV at the moment, there is the rather fantastic first season of Interview with a Vampire. Which is it good? Is it really that good? It's really good. It captures wow. the sensuality of the books. It captures the homoeroticism perfectly of the books that the films were kind of skirting around and didn't want to touch. The cast are amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's been commissioned for a second season. Hopefully it's going to keep running because I want to see this played out. Everything about the books that I loved, the series is doing well, but it's also done a great job with the series of um, updating it because the first book is set in 1973, I believe. Yeah. This is set in the modern day, but it's the same interviewer Malloy, who's now been taken by Louis again to retell the story because apparently he didn't tell him everything correctly last time and he was skirting over some issues. So it allows it to explore a lot more issues. Um, Louis in the new TV series is played by a black actor and it plays on the race issues quite well. Um, it has that outsider aspect, the slave plantation ownerships, etc. It delves into so much more than the books do did. And, you know, it's a shame that Anne Rice isn't around to see how well it's been received by critics because she passed away during the early part of production on it um, but finally her vision has been brought to life in a vivid way and i want to see it continue and get as far as memnock the devil maybe go further maybe get the rest of the books but if you can get as far as memnock i'll be happy excellent a couple of other suggestions the sword of truth series by terry goodkind and um, now there was a tv series legend of the seeker which came from sam raimi's production company but it was a network show so it was 22 episodes per season which diluted it somewhat I think that this would make a very good Witcher-esque kind of Netflix seven episodes, eight episodes per season series. There's like 23 books or something in the series. And I've read 16 of them and they're really good. Um, they're really mature. They're really adult focused. They're not like kiddish um, fantasy elements. Terry Goodkind's Sword of Truth series deserves a solid adaptation on the screens. And game books. Now, you know the fighting fantasy game books and things like that? The Choose yeah. Your Own Adventures. I remember, I remember an Indiana Jones one when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, at the time when they were hugely popular, a writer called Joe Dever, who had spent 10 years fleshing out the land of Magnamund for his D&D campaign adventures that he ran, decided to jump on the bandwagon and gave us the Lone Wolf series of books, which was a continuous adventure, building and growing the world setting that it was in. Whereas all of the books at the time were one-off, one-shots and had no connection. This was a continuous story that ran for i think 28 books and it's been adapted to comic book format it's been adapted to novelization it's been adapted to video game format it was in the pipeline to get a film 
about 10, 15 years ago and nothing ever came through on it. And I think that this is ripe material because it's not just a game book, because he fleshed out this world. He'd done a Tolkien. He'd worked out all the tribes, all the races, all the religions, all the structure, all the land setting way before writing this. And I think this could be an amazing, an amazing film or TV series. I'll keep my radar open for that one. Not not heard of it. What else have we got? Was that it? And that was it. Not not a lot of bites, um, but I think that, I mean, we used to get a load of bites on Twitter, but would, not many people are seeing bites on Twitter now unless you post something really scandalous. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, we could give it over an entire show to to uh, the demise. And one day there'll be a HBO series about the demise of Twitter, but <laughs> it certainly feels as though it, we are seeing it crumble in front of our eyes, not just yes. on a regular basis, but almost daily, hourly basis. So for those who are still sticking onto social media, I've got a I've got a challenge for you this week in our social challenge. Tell us of a monologue or line of dialogue that absolutely stands out uh, as one of your favorites in a film that you've seen. So it could be one actor giving a, a five minute piece that the absolute the entire film rests on or just a, a short piece of dialogue that just makes you want to weep or laugh or touches you affects you in some way it could be the speech from independence day it could be the dialogue on the boat in jaws leave it up to you uh, i've given you a couple of a uh, couple of ideas but i want to know what's the What's the lines of dialogue or the monologue from a movie that absolutely makes you... It's one of those where it's a, it's a great piece of acting and it makes the, the hairs on your arm bristle. It's, it's that good. It, it's that impressive. Whether it's the dialogue or it's the performance, but it's that monologue that just jumps out in a movie. You can get in touch with us to tell us your answer to that on all the social media platforms. Just search for Filmfile UK. You'll find us on there. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk, and tell us what your suggestion is. As this is our return show, we've got a bit of catching up to do. We've both got fairly behind with our movie intake, except Andy's seen everything on Netflix now. Everything. <laughs> on netflix i've used up netflix it's done <laughs> yeah it's no use for netflix anymore there's nothing out there that andy hasn't seen <laughs> so we're doing a bit of catch-up and in that catch-up for our reviews this week we won't be talking about blue beetle yet as i say we're on a catch-up i will be talking about oppenheimer i know it opened almost a month ago but it's still worth talking about Andy, what have you got? Uh, I'll be talking about Gran Turismo, which is one of the only films that I've had a chance to see this month. And also I'll talk about one of the films that landed on Netflix recently, Gal Gadot starring Heart of Stone. Uh, we've got a deep dive into Rennie Harlan and Sylvester Stallone's cliffhanger. We've got news, we've got views, and we've got the box office. Let's up with the box office. I know that Blue Beetle has dethroned Barbie at the box office with a 25 million opening weekend, but that's not entirely good news. So in the US this weekend, Blue Beetle took the top spot, ending on 25 million for the weekend, uh, knocking Barbie into second place after four weeks at the top. 21 million Barbie took this weekend, so Blue Beetle wasn't that far ahead of it. Oppenheimer is in third place, 10.7 million added onto its total. TMNT, Mutant Mayhem, 8.5 million, keeping it in fourth place. And new entry, Strays, opens in fifth with 8.2 million. Here in the UK, 
Barbie retains the top spot for a fifth week, taking another 2.6 million. It's now taken 84.7 million in the UK alone. A stunning figure for the UK box office. Oppenheimer in second place, 2.04 million added onto its total. It's up to 50 million in the UK overall. Blue Beetle opens in third, taking 1.18 million. Meg 2, The Trench, retains fourth place, 972,000 added to its total. And Strays opens in fifth place with 598,000. Strays opening weekend worldwide has only managed to claw 11.3 million, which isn't a good figure at all. Oppenheimer is now up to 722 million. Interestingly, not in the top five at the moment, but still taking some money on international markets. The film Elemental by Pixar that was considered a flop when it was released back in June in the US to a very lacklustre box office has held over well and is now entered profit. It's on 458 million worldwide and still creeping those figures up bit by bit before it eventually lands on streaming, which goes to show that it's not all about the opening weekends. If something's got good word of mouth and legs, it can carry on. The good news is that Barbie has been a complete success and even though it's finally starting to peter out it's still expected to pass Super Mario this coming week in order to be the number one film of this year. Blue Beetle's performance yes it's took the top spot but it's not done well it's it's another underperforming now it's worth noting with Blue Beetle that it wasn't intended for cinematic release at, right. at the start of production it's only cost just over 100 million to make so it's quite a low budget production any money it makes at the box office is more than what they were intending to get anyway because it wasn't planned for a box office release so it's not exactly a failure because all the costings for it came out of the HBO Max budgets it just doesn't bode well for the future of DC on the big screen if Every time a DC film comes out, you just kind of go, eh, it's done nothing. Well, Warner's bet big on The Flash being a hit, and the film mm. was a huge flop. Blue Beetle arrived in the theatres with seemingly uh, little fanfare, to be honest. Also, one of the issues on this is uh, the strike actions that are going on, which stops the cast from being able to help promote things. Yeah. And this is the first weekend we've seen multiple releases where that's been impacted, because before the strike action for the actors took place, Oppenheimer and Barbie were already on the marketing trail. So the momentum was already going. This is the first time that we've had films that kind of needed it and didn't start the marketing until the strike took place. So Blue Beetle hasn't had any of its stars out promoting it. And also at the same time, Strays, uh, which kind of needs the stars who are providing yeah. the voices because it's just dogs on screen. You don't know who's in it. You don't know what it's about. You need the stars on the publicity trail and that's seriously seriously tanked this weekend you could say that one's been abandoned in a wood somewhere yes and mission impossible even you would imagine that half a billion dollars is usually a cause for celebration but it's literally crawled past the 500 million mark at the worldwide box office yeah so it's starting to run out of momentum now talk to me is a 24 second biggest horror movie at the domestic box office in the US. Yeah. Uh, which shot past The Witch and Midsummer on its charts uh, on its chart of horror films. I think that's very reflective of how A24 as a brand has started to gain momentum. Yeah. You know, over the past few years A24 has become a symbol of something something different, something with quality and something something that might take you in directions that you wouldn't expect and so people gravitate towards it the same way that up until the past few years Blumhouse was doing the same but now I think Blumhouse is starting to peter off yeah 
on um, the fascination. A24 has stepped into that gap. Uh, but we do know that Barbie has passed the 500 million at the domestic box office. Again, that's US and now enters the top 25 all time box office movies. In fact, it kicked uh, 2015's Minions out of that uh, top 25 list. Good. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with that. Uh, Nolan's Oppenheimer has passed Interstellar at the box office. And so his biggest box office was Inception, I think, wasn't it? Or was it mm -hmm. Dark Knight? Or was, it, was it Dark Knight? It might have been Dark Knight. Yeah, so he's about yeah. to, he's got, he's, he's aiming at that, basically, yeah. uh, to try and try and beat his own record on that one. So it's been an interesting summer. Gran Turismo hasn't landed at the US box office yet, I don't think. Uh, no, it's only been on preview weekends. It comes out properly next weekend in the US. We've had it for a few weeks extra in the UK. Uh, the release date was changed in the US only about a month ago. I think because of this, Mark, like not being able to use cast on the publicity trail, they wanted to generate some word of mouth from the international release where it would have a bigger market anyway. And from um, the preview weekends. Okay, so that's the box office. What have we got news-wise? Uh, well, let's just go with the strike update. Now, the Writers Guild strike has been going on the longest, but after we'd said a few weeks ago that it looked like it wasn't going to re get resolved anytime soon, it's looking a lot more positive at the moment because both the WGA and the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers, AMPTP, have been meeting a lot over the past two weeks. Initially, the negotiations of when they reconvened broke down with no one budging, but there's been negotiations going on oh, good. and there's been to and fro's and they're listening to each other. So we're now at the stage that they're starting to listen and they're wanting to resolve things. There's still a big divide on streaming residuals and a higher minimum tier for TV writer producers. Part of that is that the WGA wants to tie streaming residuals to the popularity of a show. But as we know, streaming services don't like to reveal viewership data. There's no further, no word as yet how far these talks are going to go. And it is worth noting that the WGA's negotiating committee issued a statement this Friday evening saying, thank you for the many messages of support and solidarity as we talk with the AMPTP. As always, be sceptical of rumours from third parties. Know that the Guild will communicate when we think there is something of significance to report. So they've not reported any breakthroughs at the moment. All that we're getting is the third party news thing saying that they have been meeting. And in the past week, they've met five times. So there is momentum. There is something happening. Whether they're going to come to agreement or whether they're just constantly meeting and constantly arguing, we don't know because it's all behind closed doors. All of this comes as the same time as the starless publicity that we spoke about before with all eyes on this weekend's Blue Beetle and Strays, both of which could have benefited from people not on strike action promoting the films. We might start to see something happening. The industry is starting to feel the sting. The industry is starting to feel the pinch. Now's the time that we should hopefully start to see some kind of resolutions. But I'm still not holding my breath. No. Following on from strike action. Now, you remember when we spoke about the strike action? Yeah. One of the issues that was highlighted was the residuals. And I mentioned the dodgy accountancy practices that form part of the reason writers and actors don't see residuals. Yes. Now, there's been a couple of stories that broke just in the, in, in the last couple of hours all about that yep well one of them that broke over this past week was that disney are now being sued by some of the financiers for that very reason after investing over 3.3 billion dollars in well over 100 films at 20th century fox 20th century studios including the avatar sequel financier tsg entertainment finance has reportedly filed a breach of contract against disney of using hollywood accountancy tricks 
to cheat it out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, they allege that Disney have engaged in self-dealing by diverting Fox films from a lucrative HBO license to its own Disney Plus and Hulu platforms in an effort to boost them. In addition, it also alleges that Fox engaged in sweetheart deals upon licensing its films to the FX cable channel. Now, this is a long-term relationship that TSG had with Fox. It's been since 2012. And after Disney have acquired Fox in 2019, the lawsuit alleges that Disney fired Fox staffers responsible for marketing and distributing the films that TSG had financed and started hiding the actual results to stop the finances getting the money back so that Disney can pocket it all. One of the other main reasons that there is a strike going on, uh, with SAG in particular, is that actors' likenesses have been digitally scanned and mm. uh, are not being paid to reappear in another episode. So, for instance, The Mandalorian, there's been claims that uh, cast members have been pressured into being digitally scanned by Disney uh, so they can they can be used as, as background artists in, in shows w without ever getting any sort of residual for it. And most actors' livelihoods are, are through residuals. Again, we're not talking about the, the big billionaire, millionaire stars. Um, for instance, Bonnie Ahrens is suing Warner Brothers for using her likeness as the nun without proper pay. Yep. She plays the nun in the conjuring franchise and wants compensation for the use of her likeness that seems to be seems to me to be a pretty fair request because i've seen that image on on merchandising on posters on on masks and toys uh, and, and bonnie Irons doesn't get anything for that the whole digital mapping of background actors you know basically not having to hire background actors going forwards because you've just got their digital likenesses that is despicable that makes the stepping into working in front of the camera even harder for any aspiring artist because why should they fill that gap with someone they have to pay when they've just got an AI to just generate someone in the background looking like they're talking at a table? And a lot of actors, that is their, it's their bread and butter. Mm. Uh, and for a lot of actors, I always remember a story about Roger Moore. Roger Moore was a, an extra in a, in a in a movie and got spotted because uh, he was canny enough. And uh, if the legend is, is uh, as I was told, he his character is in a in a in an army scene uh, in a fight scene a battle scene uh, and he gets shot and then he gets back up again and then dies again <laughs> a little bit more so he stood <laughs> out and and uh, that helped him with his recognition if if it's uh, it is a an apocryphal tale I don't know but keep it in mind don't don't believe anything that you're hearing until about the strikes until the unions say it until the information comes out because yeah. uh, Hollywood has a way of twisting this and uh, and everybody wants the strike to be over including the big studios but the big studios have got a have got a cough up on this with regards to TSG entertainment finances lawsuit they've already done an independent evaluation of three of their films including the best picture winner shape of water and revealed that they're owed around 40 million or more already just on those three wow. films alone. And bear in mind, TSG contributed on films such as Bohemian Rhapsody, which was a huge success, Deadpool, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, The Martian, Grand Budapest Hotel, Banshees of Inner Sharon. They reckon it's going to be hundreds of millions that they're owed once the books are completely looked at post Disney buying out Fox. It's not good for Disney at this point in time. No. Things are not good. Oh, we'll keep you posted on that story when we hear more. Have we got any good news? Uh, we've got bits and pieces of news. Oh. Before we get on to any good news, I just want to um, also point out the repercussions of the strike action is frustrating to people who want to start making films and get them off the ground. We've waited over a decade for another Tron film, and Tron Ares has now been delayed because of the strike action, which filmmaker Joaquin Roenick 
has taken to Instagram to express his frustration. Worth saying that he is completely supportive of the strike action. He's not arguing that the actors and the writers are destroying the industry. He's completely behind them. He supports it. But he urges the sides to get back to the actual talks to resolve their differences. In his posting, he also goes on to detail about the new film, which takes AI into account and other things. Small excerpt from it. Today was supposed to be our first day of principal photography on Tron Aries, a movie subsequently about AI and what it means and takes to be human. Instead, we're shut down with over 150 people laid off because this is affecting all the people who would have been involved in the production. It's indefinite, which makes it exponentially harder for everyone. The AMPTP, SAG-AFTRA and WGA need to speed up the negotiating process and not leave the table until it's done. This is Hollywood. We close deals for breakfast. Why do we suddenly have all the time in the world when every day is so precious? These tactics are extremely frustrating. It's time for diplomacy so we can get back to work under conditions that are fair to everybody. And I think that's a very vocal point that a lot of people are validly making at this point in time. And the problem's not on the the writers and the actors who are having to take this action. They don't want it to take action. Actors and writers don't want to be out of work and not paid while they're striking. They just want to be treated fairly and actually earn a decent living. The problem is with the studios who are being reluctant to actually move forwards. Now, like I said, WGA and the AMPTP have started convening quite frequently. So hopefully we'll start to see a resolution. And all these people who are currently out of work, be it camera crew, be it sound engineers, be it effects artists, everyone who's involved, who's affected financially through this will eventually, will start to see some hope in the distance. I asked you for some good news and, and my story isn't <laughs> exactly good news either. It's hard at the moment. It is, yeah. Not okay, there's not a lot of casting news going off or, uh, uh, or films in development. Supposed to be opening in the UK, is it this week? The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which sailed mm-hmm. into a doomed opening weekend at the box office in the US has now well has been delayed indefinitely in the UK yes now this isn't because of any underperformance that it's done or any negative criticism in the UK it's because it was going to be distributed by E1 okay however E1 have just been bought out by Lionsgate which means that none of their releases can get released until everything's rights have been worked out and arranged this is similar and you you have to cast your mind back for this one robocop 3 canon films canon films went bust during the making of robocop 3 its properties were bought out the film got released two years later as a result because there was no distributor they had to iron out all the legalities so it's a shame with demeter because it's not performed in the us it was poorly marketed i know that in some international territories it's done okay because it was renamed as dracula the last voyage of the demeter because you just say Last Voyage of the Demeter, and unless you yeah, know the yeah. novel inside out, you don't recognize that name at all. It's interesting because the film has been in development for a, a good 20 years. Mm. I read a script from 2008, I think it was. Uh, there have been subsequent versions of it. And it's one of those, it's been one of those projects that's always been on the back burner at the studio for such a long time. So you're right, Lionsgate UK might shelve Demeter, but it could end up being sold to a, a different 
distributor, for instance, yep. uh, um, that's happened many times. But hopefully they'll get they'll get around to organising a, th- a theatrical release rather than let it go to sort of streaming first. But either way, we're probably going to be in for a long wait. Yeah, it's a shame because it was due out next weekend, and we'd both been quite looking forward. Yeah, to it the we're trailer both, rocked. We're both fans of the idea of it. We, you've heard the radio drama, I believe. Yeah, I, well. it was great. I mean, yeah. it was a completely unique take on it. it was a it was a fantastic radio play. I'm sure it's out there somewhere on if it's not on the bbc archives it's out there on on youtube but it was it was really really good yeah all the trailers sold and whilst critically it was getting a bit of a middle ground i did read some negative critics who clearly wanted to watch a different film i've seen critics professional critics moaning that you don't get to see the monster until the final act have they not seen alien they must have hated alien Oh, Predator. I mean, they made, the, they made the alien invisible in Predator. How ridiculous. <laughs> I, I don't get it. And I think this is just reflective of the modern audiences who just want that instant gratification. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. It's criticising the film for being what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a classic-styled monster movie where you don't see the monster fully until the final act. It's supposed to have the pacing. It's supposed to have the structure. I'm still on board for it because that trailer looked great. So you just talked about Predator. Prey came out last year. We both loved yes. it. I think it was in our top tens. Prey is finally getting a physical media release. Mm, 4K at that. Yeah. So it's been more than a year since its original release on Disney Plus in the UK, Hulu in the States. But Prey will definitely arrive a 4K UHD, Blu-ray and DVD. Now in the States, that's October the 3rd. So there's no reason to think that that's not going to happen in the UK. I think I might be adding that to my collection. I've got all the Predator films on Blu-ray. Well, you should. Well, maybe not. I shouldn't have one of them. Well, maybe <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> but for, for the first three, definitely. They're really good films. So I'd like to add Prey onto that collection. Thor 5. Yeah, I saw that this morning. I don't know what I think about it. because Neither do I. what I know from what's being released anyway, even though it's, I, it's Taiki Watiti is the issue for me. Our listeners now at this point in time are going, what? What are you on about, guys? You've, you've just hinted at something, but not said. There's a book coming out, the Thor Love and Thunder official movie special book, which is an authentic one with interviews with everyone involved in the production of Thor Love and Thunder. And Taika Waititi has suggested that he's sticking around for the fifth film. After the lacklustre response to the last film, and it looked like he was going to get sidelined and they were going to go in a different direction. Uh, we know that Chris Hemsworth is still saying he's unsure if he's going to return, unless there's a, a reason for the character to return and to push the story in a new direction. But Waititi has been planning out ideas of what he wants from the fifth film. He's been quoted as saying that he'd like to see Thor face someone even more powerful than Hela was. In his words, what is left to do to him? It's got to be something that feels like it's carrying on with the evolution of the character, but still in a very fun way and still giving him things to come up against that feel like the building on the obstacles that he has to overcome. I don't think we can have a villain that's weaker than Hela. I feel we need to step up from there and add a villain that's somehow more formidable. Yeah, same as you. I don't know how I feel about it because I loved Thor Ragnarok, but Love and Thunder became too Taika Waititi. Whilst I loved the elements of Waititi's humour that he put into Ragnarok, it was overdone in Love and Thunder. Mm -hmm. Now, if he reins himself back in and focuses on story and just has his usual underlying humour, yes, I'll give it a shot. But I was I was kind of excited at the idea of someone else taking the reins. Yeah, just going going left of centre the way that Waititi did with it and, and say, this is Thor, this is the character that can work in a superhero setting, uh, can work in a, a, a postmodernist, jocular way. 
let's do Conan the Barbarian in in space, you know, and yep. and go somewhere very different with it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it. When we know more, we'll let you know. Spider-Verse changes. So Sp- Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse got released on digital platforms over the past week or so. And fans of the film, who watched it multiple times at the cinema, have started making lists of various changes they've seen. I heard about that. I was going to ask you. It's one of the things on my list to ask you about. Apparently, some of the film's dialogue, some of the visuals, and some of the effects look like they've been tweaked for the home release version. Mostly additions, but there's been some removals as well. Some of the more obvious changes include Miguel O'Hara's digital assistant posing for a selfie, Spider-Punk getting lyrics in, in his intro song, the spot getting some dialogue change up, and the line, sorry man, I'm going home, that Miles says to Miguel has been removed completely. More lines in the face of Earth-42 Prowler, changes in shot compositions, and more. Um, there's Twitter threads out there with huge comprehensive lists of every change, minor and major, that appears to be there. Do we know why? Well, after there was a lot of discussion saying that there was different versions for different international audiences, and maybe it's just that something got slipped past after they made some changes, once it had already been locked in for a certain territory. Lord and Miller have finally spoken with Games Radar about the visual and auditory changes to certain shots. Miller said there was an international version that was made almost two months before the movie came out because it had to be translated into different languages. And those censors have to decide what the rating of the movie is in Europe. So it's all down to the censorship timeline that they had a version that was ready that they sent out. But the team over at Sony Pictures Imageworks still had some shots that they felt they could tweak and do better for the finished version. And so they cleaned it up and tweaked those things. So the version that we're getting on digital at the moment is the version that they would have liked to have put out at the start. But the fact that they had to lock in a version to go out to censors meant that they didn't have time to lock everything in. So that makes this version the definitive version? Yes. Right. I'm with you. I, I think it'd be nice if they'd give us access to the cinematic version as well. And, you know, whenever they do things like this, I get why they've done it, but it's kind of been done in a George Lucas kind of way where it's like, you're not going to see the old version again. Tough. Yeah. And I don't like that. I'd like the, I'd like the opportunity to choose which version I want to watch. Gotcha. Hey, we mentioned A24 earlier. I mean, it seems A24 are now going to re-release one of the legendary concert films probably of all time that had a reason to feel cinematic yes they are re-releasing the talking heads concert film stop making sense which is a a work of genius if you've not had a chance Mm. to see it it's a brilliant brilliant piece of work that takes the concert films into a a unique area you never see the audience you just see the band on stage and you see a, a very unique perspective on how a band perform on stage. So if you've not had a chance to see it and you do like concert films, when it is re-released in your region, check out A24's re-release of The Talking Heads' Stop Making Sense. And those who are going, what's The Talking Heads? Just just listen on Spotify. I'll just set it, send a psycho killer after them. Yeah. Some quick news. The Harder They Fall 2 has been hinted at. James Samuel's 2021 Harder They Fall, where, which was a cool Western. Uh, that dropped on yeah it was okay it was okay samuel has teased that he's progressing forward with a sequel responded that there is when a fan asked him is there a sequel in the works he's not gone into any details but it builds hope for us people who just want a bit of a fun western with a vibe to it a24 again and their new comedy dream scenario which stars nicholas cage as a schlubby professor who becomes an overnight celebrity after appearing in everyone's dream will be released in cinemas on november the 10th christopher borgley 
pens and directs the film, which Ari Aster is producing. It's coming from A24. It's got Nicolas Cage. It's going to be a good Nicolas Cage film. Can't wait. Dial of Destiny, Indiana Jones, has set next Tuesday, August the 29th, for a digital release. This won't be going free straight away onto streaming on Disney+. Plus. This is for premium rental on Prime Video, Apple TV, Vudu, etc. Obviously trying to claw back as much of the box office loss as they can before they put it onto Disney Plus service. Apple TV's MonsterVerse series, Monarch Legacy of the Monsters, had its first look over the last week that showed a shot of Kurt Russell and Wyatt Russell and a, a very famous sort of giant lizard. Kaiju? Yeah, that's the word I was searching for. Set in the same universe <laughs> as uh, the legendary Warner Brothers monster movies, which we've seen Godzilla, uh, Kong, Skull Island, which I still think is the best. Godzilla vs. Mm. Kong, Monarch will span three generations and explore our complicated dealings with the massive kaiju creatures. And one of the things I think is incredibly smart is that Wyatt Russell is playing the same character as his father, Army Officer yes. Lee Shaw. So we get to see the young Lee Shaw, played by Wyatt Russell, and the older Lee Shaw, played by Kurt Russell. So taking place in the 1950s and then half a century later when Monarch is threatened by what Shaw knows. Developed by Chris Black and, and this makes it very interesting, Matt Fraction, with One Division's Matt Shackman handling directing duties on the first two episodes. I'm looking forward to it. Giddy. I've, loved, Call me I've Giddy. loved the monster movies. I agree with you that Skull Island is the best of them. It's just such a beautiful film. It that. is. It's great. But I've enjoyed each of the films for its own yeah. own reason. Absolutely. And I love this whole idea, like you do, of having the Russells playing younger and older. Uh, yet to confirm when the show will land, stomp, smash onto our TV screens, but we're guessing uh, next year. Now, we revealed a couple of weeks ago that Mattel, after the success of Barbie, have greenlit 14 different IPs from its own toy brand. Well, Hasbro have jumped in of with their own have. list. They've, they've launched a new Hasbro Entertainment content studio, which that new division aims to unify film, TV, animation, and digital media production, following on from Hasbro selling E1 to Lionsgate for around 500 million. In the wake of that sale, Hasbro aims to focus on branded assets like Peppa Pig, Transformers, Dungeons and Dragons, in an effort to become a digital gaming powerhouse. Other brands at the company with adaptations in development include G.I. Joe, Nerf, Play-Doh, Magic the Gathering, and My Little Pony. The new team is going to be led by Olivier Dumont, who's the president of Hasbro Entertainment. Zev Foreman and Gabrielle Marano are installed as head of film and head of television. All three were previously executives at E1. Hasbro's aim is to reinvest in fewer and more profitable properties, teaming with outside partners to reduce production costs. Already in the works are animated Transformers 1 film, Dungeons & Dragons series for Paramount Plus is still going ahead. Okay. Both franchises had a new film installments this year, didn't do very well at the box office, but they still are recognisable enough properties to hopefully generate something from. Expect more Hasbro products to be greenlit for something, possibly using Paramount Plus, either for a Paramount Plus movie or Paramount Plus limited TV series as a tester. We should have seen more of Hamish Patel after The Brilliant Yesterday, but we now know he's been cast along with Aya Cash in a superhero movie-making satire series called mm. The Franchise. Yep, don't know a lot about it, but at this point in time, I'm more interested in things that are going to poke fun at the superhero genre than superhero genre films. And I think that's because there's too many superhero genre films and maybe we just need we need them to be taken down a peg or two. 
Yeah. The same way that Austin Powers did with the Bond franchise and the spy dramas. And I think it's more than time for another Austin Powers film to jump in again and start to play with that formula. Funny enough, I, I, I saw Austin Powers recently and it's, it's not aged, aged well. <laughs> anyway, There's been some great trailers uh, while we've been off air. Uh, probably, I'm going to go for the, uh, for the Zenith, which was the Continental trailer, which Ooh. takes the John Wick universe to 1970s New York. And boy, did it look great. Oh, it looks smooth. It looks stylish. It looks 70s aesthetically. And the lead actor playing Winston actually emulates that character really well. Yeah, we also had the I Am Groot trailer for season two of probably the most uh, cute character out of all the Marvel films. Yes. And we had for Netflix, the Scott Pilgrim animated series trailer. Oh, yes, we did. Forgot all about that one. All the cast reprising their roles. And it looks like it's going to be closer to the graphic novel than what the film was even though that was a pretty darn good film and i'm there i can't wait and over on disney plus we had percy jackson and the olympians trailer which looks like a december release date sticking closer to the books than that poor attempt at a film franchise yeah i saw the first one i didn't mind the first one um i, I didn't bother with the second i wasn't drawn yeah. to it at all so that's it for this week's news. But before we go, a couple of sad passing. Uh, Emmy Award winning actor Ron Cephas Jones has passed away at age 66. For those who don't know Jones, he was a scene-stealing supporting actor for decades uh, before a late career surge blossomed for the Harlem-born actor, particular in the US series This Is Us. But genre fans will know him for his role as Romero in Mr. Robot and in Luke Cage playing Bobby Fish. But the sad news this side of the pond is the sad passing of Michael Parkinson. No, he wasn't a movie star. Yes, he did act in a few things. But for those of us of a certain age, he was a, a, a massive part of our lives. He was our connection to Hollywood. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Through the interviews that he did with some huge names through his career, he was, he was a staple of weekly television. Everyone tuned in. Um, to his talk show Parkinson which launched in 1971 he'd already been a reporter and film reviewer through the 60s and then got his own show in 1971 which ran for years upon years upon years he got to interview sports stars like Muhammad Ali music stars Madonna David Bowie he interviewed Tom Cruise Helen Mirren so many names and I remember as a kid that we used to sit and watch it and you try getting a six or seven year old to sit and watch a chat show these days they're not interested but we used to plan that's going to be on at eight o'clock tonight we're sitting we're watching it who's he going to be interviewing this week he was such an engaging interviewer and sometimes the interviews didn't quite go the way that he wanted them to go and there was a lot of unpredictability but he always focused on his guests he always focused on the interview subject and not himself i think you know as much as i enjoy what jonathan ross does I think that he flips a lot of it to talk about himself a lot. Yeah. I was going to jump in and just say that what Parky did, as I, and I'll, I'm going to redefine it. I think he did a talk show as opposed to a chat show. And he had yes. people who came on, not just because they were there to promote something. He had guests on that, that had a story to tell. He had movie stars on, and he was, he was a, a huge fan of Hollywood, old Hollywood. He was erudite, and he, he allowed them to talk and he allowed them to express themselves and he allowed them to go down down sort of rabbit holes with none of that and you see it on, on a lot of modern day shows where you know they've been given three talking points that they're going to get yeah. 
and that they are going to talk about, oh, by the way, didn't something happen to you when you were 12? Very, very similar to this. It was not it was not that these people were on to talk about their lives and with the right amount of questioning. And, and he, he did it brilliantly. One episode comes to mind is when he had Robbie Williams on in one of the later shows with Peter O'Toole, who was at that point quite old. And both Williams and Parkinson started asking questions to Peter O'Toole, who, who revealed that he had a crush on, probably more than a crush, on Audrey Hepburn. And, and that wouldn't have been scripted or wouldn't have been planned mm. by, a, uh, by a researcher in, in, in the beginning. Or the first time I ever saw Steve Martin was on Parkinson. Yeah. And Steve Martin got a pair of scissors and cut Parkinson's tire in half demonstrating what comedy was and what slapstick comedy was. Brilliant, brilliant man. For one of the best examples of how he's allowing the interviewee freedom to talk about what they want can sometimes turn the show into something completely different was the famous interview he did with Robin Williams when it basically just turned into a, a Robin Williams half an hour stand-up sketch routine. And it was brilliant. It's because Robin Williams was never one to shy away from talking about anything and going off on tangents. And Parkinson just allowed him, allowed him to dominate the whole show. Yeah, he he never saw it as like an insult that his guests took the prime slot. He enjoyed being there with those guests. He enjoyed learning stuff from them. He enjoyed entertaining people alongside them. Sad loss, particularly like for those of us in the UK for whom he was a staple of our development throughout the years. Passed away age eighty eight, um, following a brief illness. If you don't know much about Parkinson, what I would suggest you do is check out on Twitter the comments that Sir Paul McCartney uh, mm. has put up about talking about Parkinson. It's really touching and it, and it sort of reveals an awful lot about Parkinson himself, yeah. who, of course, famously was on the cover of the band On The Run. Yes. Uh, Wings album. And that's it for this week's news. So it's good to have you back with the film file. And if you are enjoying the show and you've not yet subscribed, the question is, why not? Come mm -hmm. on, guys, please subscribe. Enjoy the show at your benefit because you'll get it sent directly to you every week, as well as the occasional bonus episode. All you have to do, if you've not already done so, is check out your favorite podcast platform, hit the subscription button and leave a review and a like and remember to get in touch with us because we love it when you join us and ask us questions or want to know more about the films or offer deep dives you name it if you want to talk about films then the film file is the place for you because we do it of a place that starts with love of all things cinema and now it's time for this week's deep dive <laughs> Dive, dive. We're going to be looking at the 1993 thriller directed by Rennie Harlan. It starred Sylvester Stallone and it was Cliffhanger. Please, please, I don't want to die. You're not going to die. Don't Matheson has been transferred from the Denver office to Frisco, and as a professional courtesy between offices, I was asked if he could hitch a ride. Got plenty of room. Be glad to accommodate you. Bruce got an emergency call. Five climbers just ran off Combe left. I haven't climbed in months. You just lose the feel. Maybe you mean the nerve.
Cliffhanger came out in 1993, directed by Rennie Harlan, and the film follows Gabe Walker, played by Sylvester Stallone, a mountain climber who becomes embroiled in the heist of a US Treasury plane. He's haunted by a failed rescue attempt and decides to return to the mountain to help uh, plane crash survivors, but soon learns that these guys are crooks, using him to find the loot scattered near the wreckage. This is one of those, well, one of those classic 90s action movies. Sylvester Stallone was at the top of his game, as was director Rennie Harlan. It was notable for being part of what you could call a genre trend at that particular time. This is Die Hard with a, in this case, Die Hard on a Mountain. But saying that, it's also a lot of fun. And if you've got vertigo, well... This is not the film for you. <laughs> yes. Rennie Harlan had already given us Die Hard at an airport with the second Die Hard film. So it, it was pretty obvious that this was just something that was offered him afterwards of like, how do you want to do another one but with Stallone? It's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go up the mountain and let's just deliver the same formula. Rennie Harlan is a director who's known for rolling out what I find enjoyable if underappreciated adventures and action. Right from like when he did a Elm Street Ford Dream Master, which a lot of people snub. I think it's actually quite good. It's not great, but it's it's quite good. After Cliffhanger, he gave us things like Cutthroat Island, Long Kiss Goodnight, which is definitely getting a deep dive at some point. Yeah, it's great. Deep Blue Sea. Uh, the 2001 Driven was Stallone, which wasn't great, but it's enjoyable. 12 Rounds, which wasn't great, but it's enjoyable. You'll see a trend <laughs> happening here. That he makes enjoyable films that are inherently flawed. But suffice to say, I'm quite partial to his hokum. And revisiting Cliffhanger this week reminded me of what it is about his hokum that I like. The cast is interesting. <laughs> That's the best way to describe the cast in this. Interesting. Let's start with Will Sylvester Stallone. Because Stallone at that point was at the top of his game. He was an international action star. Probably the, one of the most recognisable, other than not being Bruce Willis or Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were the holy trinity of action stars mm. at this particular point, And he could do anything. Rennie Harlan was hot after Die Hard 2. Sylvester Stallone had branched into a couple of comedies and in fact was going to do a comedy with John Candy over at Carlico Pictures uh, to be written and directed by John Hughes and then was going to do a sci-fi thriller Isobar and then was going to work with Rennie Harlan on what was described as Die Hard in a Hurricane. You can see, that, again, a, a trend. And then they went with this and it just had box office success written all over it. Yeah, I mean, the, the star power of Stallone as Ranger Gabe Walker is the draw factor in this. But around him, you've got, I mean, the most bizarre bit of casting, and I still don't get it, even after all these years, and re-watching it this week, it made even less sense. John Lithgow. Yes, the great John Lithgow, as I think is, a, is now his official title. As Eric Quaylen, a psychopathic ex-military officer who leads the thieves. Oh, oh, by the way, he's British. I could only put this down to all the British actors who were getting significant villain roles because of films like Die Hard were all taken. They were all booked up. And so they've looked around going, we need a British actor. Well, uh, he talks quite posh, doesn't he? Uh, but he's not British. Get him to do an accent. Rather than rewriting the character, they wanted to keep that the British are always the bad guys staple of this kind of genre. Because it is. It's yeah. one of the biggest tropes of this genre is that the bad guy is always played by a Brit or a Brit character. Well, originally, Lithgow was cast as the film's secondary villain, but was promoted 
after Christopher Walken left the film. Now, was Christopher Walken going to play an English baddie? That that scares me more than anything else. That would have been hilarious, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but Lithgow is clearly having fun in a menacing role, but he's he kind of forgets to be menacing enough. Um, interestingly, one of his team is actually a Brit, Craig Fairbrass as Delamere. Whatever happened to Craig Fairbrass? Wasn't he in all those foot soldier films or something? Yeah, he was going to be the British Sylvester Stallone at one point. Fairbrass's character in this, and this shows the times that we were living in. This was the times of thuggish footballers because he is playing a sadistic ex-footballer turned henchman because <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, elsewhere in the cast, the usual array of support actors that you'll recognise from so many things crop up in their usual roles, most of them as CIA agents because every member of the CIA or FBI teams in this, you go, he always plays that character. <laughs> <laughs> but this is tropes. This is just, this is a generic action film with the front and centre aspect being Stallone as Ranger Gabe Walker. And that opening act section, with the failure of him saving the girlfriend of his best buddy, played by um, Michael Rooker. He's playing Hal. Oh, yeah, of course, Michael Rooker. That was quite a pleasant surprise. I was like, oh, I forgot he was in it. Given the first act backdrop, that gives Gabe his aversion to climbing again because he lost someone at such a height, etc. But then he kind of quickly forgets about that and just gets on with it. It adds in some initial tension between him and Hal which is quickly forgotten about to just get on with it. Generally, this this whole first act is pointless because everything that it sets up for the characters and for their aversions, their conflicts, etc., is just disregarded very quickly. But that's kind of missing the point because this is a thrill ride action spectacle and on the action, it delivers. It does. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's Stallone, as I said, at the top of his game at, at this particular point in his career. It's over the top in the way that we come to expect from late 80s, early 90s action movies. And everything was uh, was about being bigger mm. than the last action film, especially if it starred Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis. Absurdly overblown stunts. But there is that sense, and we just talked about it before we, we started recording. If, you, if you've got vertigo, this is not the film yes. for you. There, some of the shots on the mountains of them climbing. Whew. Oh, if you, th if you think that opening section of Mission Impossible 2 with Tom Cruise, like, free climbing up the side of a mountain is, is really nerve-wracking, you haven't seen anything until you've watched Cliffhanger because, boy, it uses the camera right to get the angles looking really perilous. It uses the tension. It uses ropes slowly fraying or slowly slipping. Plays everything to really, really wreck your nerves. In the action, not only have you got, like, you know, high, high wire rope acts, but you've got an in-flight attack, you've got a plane crash, you've got extreme mountain climbing, you've got cave diving, you've got ice swimming, you've got gunplay, you've got helicopter peril. It's just plain thrill after thrill after thrill. You don't get enough breathing space between any moments to go, oh, that didn't quite work before something else hits you and just goes, oh, well, that's picked me up again. It just carries you along through the whole film. It's about two hours long. And you know what? Yeah. It, it flew by. It felt because it, it, it's tense, isn't it? Yeah. All the way through, it's tense and it's action packed, and it does what an overblown thriller should do. It delivers on on all counts. And Stallone was in, in 
really good shape back yes. then and you can see every sinew of muscle as he's climbing up i can't remember how much of his own stunts that he actually did but there was lots of talk that he he, he did some of the climbing see sequences himself but i from what i believe there are lots of doubles filled into it because he has a, a fear of heights for instance it's interesting because he is in great shape and he's got the biggest physicality. And so they don't want to bury that underneath layers of clothing that you would wear at such height. So there's some contrived reasons why he strips down to almost vests multiple times through the film. And each of the times that it happens, you go, he's dead in three minutes. The cold <laughs> exposure is just going to kill him. But no, no, it was just to show off his muscles until like he can get soaking wet and then just put a blanket around himself and feel better because that's how it works, apparently. Ignore the plot. Ignore the nonsense. Ignore the contrivances. This is a film that is, it's my definition of popcorn movie. It's a brain at the door, sit and munch of popcorn and just enjoy the spectacle. Uh, and that's it. It's it's an era of filmmaking which which has now moved on. We don't get this kind of overblown thriller. We get other kinds of overblown thrillers, but but not this. And it really is a time capsule of of the kind of movies that that they don't make anymore. Until one day they will. I think the closest that you get to this kind of overblown action film these days is sadly the stuff that Netflix are churning yeah. out. But Netflix try to make them a bit too serious. And I think these kind of films work better if they just ignore the plot, plot mistakes, if they just play for the fun. This is an era of filmmaking. I mean, the 80s and 90s gave us loads of films that I absolutely adore, despite the fact that they're actually, when you rip them to shreds, pretty easy to rip to shreds. And Cliffhanger is another one in that category. It's a mess of a story. You could criticise this film and absolutely destroy every aspect of it, bit by bit, but you'd be missing the whole point. This is entertainment. So in 1994, TriStar announced plans to develop a sequel called Cliffhanger 2, because why not? And that was going to be subtitled The Dam, with Stallone reprising his role from the first movie. The plot revolved around Gabe Walker combating terrorists who took control of the Hoover Dam. The project remained in development until 2008, when the project was revived with Stallone's involvement, but again, was shelved uh, back in may this year it's been officially announced that a legacy sequel is going to be developed and directed by rick roman war um who you might recognize his name as the guy who gave us films like such as greenland marvelous film angels fallen i can see why he's been picked for cliffhanger 2 stallone is going to reprise his role as gabe walker alongside a new cast and it's going to be set in the italian alps casting is underway well, it was underway before the strike took place. Is there room for a cliffhanger film? As long as they keep it as dumb fun and don't try to be clever with it, yes. I'd heard that Jason Momoa was interested um, when the film was first announced in 2019, but we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't know what I feel about sort of legacy sequels, especially when the lead actor is, is, is too old. But cliffhanger is a classic of its genre. Uh, and yeah. when we used to talk about films that this is die hard with a whatever then this one did it perfectly if you want to catch cliffhanger andy where can you find it uh, you need to be a rental or a purchase at this point in time it's not available for free on any service uh, i think it not long ago got dropped off one of the services keep your look out it might pop on something in the coming months it does pop up on bbc and itv from time to time which means it'll go onto one of their players for a month after then as well well worth hanging on to we'll be back next week with another deep dive and now it's time for this week's reviews. 
you know that we've not been on our game. I've had a holiday. Andy's been in surgery. We're kind of a little bit, slightly embarrassingly behind on our reviews. We have reasons, of course, but we are slightly behind. So no Blue Beetle for this week yet. I'm going to be talking about Oppenheimer, but because Andy is strapped to a chair right now, he's had to endure nearly everything that Netflix has had to offer. So Andy, kick off with your reviews. So I'll start with that Netflix film, and it's Heart of Stone, which stars a Gal Gadot as a secret agent. Let's go. Three, two, one. This might be kind of intense. Chance of success, just 32%. Because you've got no imagination. What you don't know, The Charter is the most highly trained agents working to keep peace in a turbulent world. Gives the charter its power. If you own it, you own the world. We've been breached. And now you answer to me. I'm coming for you. Another month, another attempt by Netflix to take a big name and give them an action franchise. And this time, that star is Gal Gadot, who plays Rachel Nine of Hearts Stone, an international intelligence operative for an organization known as Charter, who's embedded within an MI6 team. Her mission is to protect the AI master system that her intelligence agency uses, the heart, from being destroyed or stolen by enemy hands. However, it appears she may not be the only double agent within the MI6 team, and pretty swiftly things go south for Charter, leaving Stone having to rely on her own skills and those of the people she lied to within her MI6 group to save the world. Sounds thrilling, and while some of the action moments do offer some kind of thrill, sadly, it's all a little too familiar and, as expected from Netflix, preposterous. Wanting desperately to be a Mission Impossible, but not having the sharpness of story or the thrill of action that doesn't look like it demanded CGI trickery and drone shots to give it any impact, Heart of Stone ends up being far too generic as a result, despite some interesting ideas that are scattered throughout, or the presence of some cast who are capable of much better. Names such as Sophie Okonedo, Matthias Schweighofer, Glenn Close and Jamie Dorman, have all demonstrated elsewhere what they can give when the material lets them, but here they are sidelined and bland, lacking any real memorable presence on screen. The majority of the runtime is spent with the lead, Gal Gadot, and sadly this is the film's undoing. Gadot simply can't act. And whilst in action films that doesn't necessarily matter at all, after all, nobody could ever excuse Arnold Schwarzenegger of being a good actor, but damn if he doesn't dominate the screen, neither does she have any real screen presence. Yes, in the Wonder Woman films, she worked, but when you're playing an immortal Amazon princess from a mystical land, you can kind of get away with anything. Much like how Orlando Bloom seemed great as Legolas, but in everything else since has come across as a little too wooden. Gadot lacks presence on screen, and her line delivery is stilted at best, which made it very easy to lose interest in anything going on, as I simply didn't care for her character. Heart of Stone, churns out that typical Netflix level of action schlock we've come to expect. It thinks it's more serious than it actually is. It lacks any real drama or thrill. It underwhelms more than Red Notice, which at least had The Rock and Ryan Reynolds to add some charismatic fun moments. This is one I recommend you give a miss. You know what? I couldn't bring myself to watch this. You lucky, lucky man. I saw the trailer. I thought the trailer (laughs) looked good. I just couldn't bring myself. It, It was there. It was right in front of me. I was ready to go. And I just couldn't do it. It's interesting that we've spoken in our deep dive about dumb, fun action films actually working. 
But this is an example of a dumb action film that could have been fun, but tries its best to be too clever and too smart. And you don't need them to be clever and smart when you're just being dumb. And Gal Gadot can't act. She was lucky in the role of Wonder Woman, the same way that um, Orlando Bloom was marvellous as Legolas, but really flat as everything that he's pretty much done since because not got the screen presence. Gal Gadot's just not got the presence. This seems to be Netflix's thing right now. Globetrotting spy thrillers. We had it with Grey Man, which was a disappointment. Extraction's the only one so far that sort of worked exceptionally mm. well. But but we've had, as I said, Grey Man and Red Notice as well. And even Apple, to some extent, dropped the ball with that Chris Evans movie, Ghosted. They, they just don't work. I, I, I don't know. They, they are far too quippy. Um, yes, some good action sequences, but uh, extraction is the exception. But in this case, the main reason is that Gal Gadot isn't strong enough in a lead role to carry what is a, an obvious attempt at a franchise starter. Whether that will happen all depends on Netflix's viewing figures. What else have you got? I did get to the, go to the cinema before I went in for my operation because I've had this one on my slate since it got announced, and that's the Gran Turismo movie. I'm ready. Let's go. This is not a video game. This is reality. I know this track. Let me drive it my way. You've got to prove to everyone that you belong. Come on, get in the fight! Yes, sir. Gran Turismo. In the diverse range of video game adaptations to film, I don't think anyone had Gran Turismo on their bingo card, given the game is not more than a driving simulator and contains zero plot elements. However, in adapting the title for the screen, a smart decision was made. Focus on the extended realm of Gran Turismo via the GT Academy that began in 2008, which sought to grow a new wave of real-life racers from the gaming community. So the film focuses on the journey of Jan Mardenborough and delivers a biopic about a gamer turned racer, which is the perfect material for a typical sports-based rags-to-riches tale. We follow Jan, played by Archie Madikoy, the son of a real-life footballer, Steve Mardenborough, who'd never raced in motorsports aside from online in video games. Beating 90,000 other gamers in the GT Academy entrance challenges, he was shortlisted to be trained professionally with the aim to represent Nissan on the professional circuit. But along the way, he faces challenges both professionally and personally that he must overcome in order to prove that gamers can be taken seriously as racers. Interestingly, this film's plot is so generic that you'd be forgiven for believing it was all made up, as all the standard tropes of underdog tales are rolled out. However, while some liberties are taken for dramatic purposes, with some events being reordered to build the drama, I mean, right from the start, as Jan, in reality, entered the Academy in the third year, not the first year, as this film suggests, it's worth noting that much of what you see is factual, even the more trope-like moments. You could dispute that the restructuring of certain moments, such as Jan's major crash on track, make it more fiction than truth, but fundamentally, this is the real-life story that dreams are made of. Who doesn't dream that their favourite hobby could actually gain them fame and fortune? In the role as Jan, Archie Madikui is grounded and authentic. He showcases a nervous gamer entering a world that he isn't sure he belongs in, but grows in confidence to prove that he does. Jaimon Honso plays his father and ex-footballer Steve, who has a fractured relationship with his son, who he can't relate to. 
and he gives what we generally expect from the actor with a heartfelt performance that benefits the family drama aspect. Orlando Bloom as Nissan marketing executive Danny Moore, a fictionalised version of real-life exec Darren Cox, is okay at best, and perhaps the weakest element within. Yes, even Jerry Halliwell as Jan's mother makes more of an impression. But after the early part of the film, Bloom gets kind of sidelined as the mentor for the racers, Jack Salter, played by David Harbour, dominates the screen. As the ex-racer who doesn't believe these gamers could ever be professionals, his gruffness and challenging attitude serves as the perfect balance against the youthful enthusiasms of the gamers. Over the course of the film, he becomes an almost surrogate father figure to Jan, helping him grow into his new world, and the pair of stars play marvellously together. Directed by Neil Blomkamp, the film looks great, with the racing moments in particular offering the kind of thrill they really need to sell the idea. The races themselves would be fantastic without additional touches, but Blomkamp, wanting to capture the gamer intensity and vision of the proceedings, adds in some visual and audible elements to tie to the game. Racer positions pop up over the top of cars, race line dashes appear on the track, alert noises when overtaking someone, and even some spectacular CGI disassembly of vehicles at points for a nice flourish. For fans of the game series, these touches connect to the video game side of it, whilst retaining a solid real-life racing element for the general audience through. Blomkamp also tackles the more personal drama well, making it easy to care for Jan right from the start, and engaging you in every interaction he has throughout. Yes, there are anachronisms that you could fault, and maybe the framing of the crash being used as a motivational element for the final act does warrant some of the controversy it's generated, but none of that takes away from this being a thrilling 134 minutes in a cinema screen and one of the best video game adaptations to date. So, as you said, this is directed by Neil Blow and Camp. Are there signs of it being his kind of film because he's done very particular looking science fiction films until now? I think some of his visual trickery that he does for the racers with the like CGI of like the gamers' vision kind of things show some of the elements of his sci fi aspect that he would have thrown in. But because it's quite a grounded story of like, you know, the real life tale ish in the same way that Bohemian Rhapsody was the real life story. If you put this alongside all other Blomkamp films, this would be the one that you'd be convinced someone else made because it doesn't feel like a Blomkamp film. But it does showcase that he's far more capable of a lot more than what people give him credit for. As we said at the beginning of the reviews, we've missed quite a few movies that we should have seen. I wanted to see Joyride because I think that looked really interesting. Despite what I thought, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem has had great reviews and he's still playing. Haunted Mansion kind of came and went. Talk to me. Uh, I think we'll catch up on streaming. But I did see probably the other big movie of the summer. Um, Andy talked about Barbie. I'm going to talk about Oppenheimer. We've got one hope. Secret Laboratory. In the middle of nowhere, our nation's best scientists focused on one goal. End this war. Our boys would come home. I can perform this miracle. Robert, try not to blow up the world. Oppenheimer. So you've probably seen this by now, or you will at least have read plenty of reviews. But I'm guessing as your film geeks, you will have seen it. So interested to know what your take is on it. Of course, directed by Christopher Nolan. Yes, it stars Killian Murphy, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, a very powerful Robert Downey Jr., uh, Florence Pugh. And it 
is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer as played by Killian Murphy. And the film works in that atypical Christopher Nolan way, which is a, a non-linear, non-chronological telling of the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the architect of the atomic bomb. And the story kicks off with Oppenheimer being interrogated about supposed communist links. And as doing so, he reflects on his achievements and his mistakes. It's billed as a biopic of a theoretical physicist, the father of the atomic bomb. But biopic is almost uh, too small a word to, to really contain the ambitions and to some extent the scope of Nolan's work. This is everything that Nolan has done and almost has been pointing in this direction. There are lots of comparisons to Nolan as being our generation's Stanley Kubrick. And I think more so than anything else, this film allows him that label. Ultimately, Oppenheimer is a modern day atomic age Frankenstein, a man who is captivated and captured by the boundless possibilities of science. And of course, as in Frankenstein, uh, realizing far too late that his creation has limitless power and therefore limitlessly destructive. I'm going to start by talking about Murphy, who is absolutely unique in this film. He has uh, a hollow, haunted face. And as the film unfolds, we we focus, or Nolan focuses a lot on his face, especially Murphy's ice-chipped blue eyes that have never been put to better use than anything else he's done. And we talk about eyes being the window to the soul. And in this, they are not only a window to a soul, but a reflection of the society and the world that Oppenheimer is. His physicality is alarmingly brilliant. He is the heart and soul of this film. He's a, a slight character, a man who is interested in theory, let alone the science. And it's not a flashy performance. You leave that to Matt Damon as... Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, for example, who is bullish and uh, clenched fist all the way through. This Oppenheimer is, is, is almost, he's almost feels as though he's been cut out of rock. Of course, the classic heart of the movie is the first explosion. And it, it's chilling and frightening. And as we now know, it, it was done without the use of, of CGI. Robert Downey Jr. as Oppenheimer's former colleague, Louis Strauss, is is excellent and therefore i am expecting a, a best supporting actor a, a nomination for next year it's very nolan in the fact that the film isn't entirely linear there is a, a pivotal moment quite early on in the film with albert einstein which uh, moors what the film is about until it's revealed later on the film so it doesn't stray from the oeuvre that nolan always presents that you don't know where you are there are problems with the female characters, uh, Florence Pugh in particular as Oppenheimer's mistress, Jean Tatlock. She kind of gets a bit of short shrift. And Emily Blunt spends the first two hours of the film clutching wine or martini until she's allowed to sort of break out in the end. But it is an amazing looking film. It's a towering achievement. This is Nolan doing what Nolan does best. But while there's no shortage of scenes of furious blackboard scribbling and uh, talking about a theory, it's the one element that, that I don't think Nolan puts forward and that it doesn't have an emotional heart. It has mm. a heart that is talking about the, the masterful strokes and, and, and talking about genius and talking about the way that uh, what it means to have, uh, to have achieved 
something that is ultimately the greatest creation in weaponry, which is also damned the world forever. But he's not an emotive director. And this fi film, no matter what, despite the great performances, is a cold film. And that's the same thing that I think Kubrick suffered for a lot in his films. Yeah. Beautifully visual, incredibly compelling, astounding in places, but left me cold. Now, if that was its intention, then it, it succeeded brilliantly. But I do think Nolan runs the risk of, of, of not having an emotional resonance in his story. And therefore, it lacks, it lacks a soul. But as a piece of filmmaking, it is absolutely masterful a beautifully constructed character study. I intend to watch it at some point, but I'm not sure when it's going to be. Yes, yeah, a film that you, you have to watch. It's good to see a film that is, is, is an intelligent film doing so well at the box office. It's well yeah. worth it. Anyway, that's the reviews for this week. Uh, we'll try and get up to date next week. But Andy, what can we expect delivered to our cinemas and streaming services and TVs over the next week. So at cinemas this coming week, there's The Blackening, other smaller releases this weekend, Theatre Camp and The Dive, on limited release, check your local listings, see if they're on there. Now TV and Sky, two films that are already in there, one which we spoke about when it got released at the cinema, one which I'm going to speak about next week as one of my picks for streaming. Dungeons and Dragons is already on, now TV and Sky. It's also on Paramount+. Plus. Get it checked out. But she said the Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan starring biopic about the journalist who broke the Me Too story against Weinstein. That landed on Now TV and Sky this weekend. I'll talk about it next week. Um, Megan lands this coming week on Sky. And Agent Game, Mel Gibson and Jason Isaacs thriller. It's got Sky original all over it. Over on Netflix, something that intrigues me more than interests me. Choose Love. It's a rom-com. But it's an interactive one where at points in the film, you make your choice on the remote control as to where it's going to go. I like the idea. I'm not sure the film's <laughs> going to be for me. No. Um, over on Amazon, strongly recommend Women Talking. I talked about it when it got released earlier this year. It was Oscar nominated. Powerful film. And a film that I won't be watching. Greatest Days, the taste that take that musical also lands on Amazon this week. And on Disney Plus, Cinderella, the animated movie, gets a 4K restoration landing on there this week. But... My eyes are set on Ashoka, first two episodes. Oh, yeah, that's this week. That's that's flown by. So it, it, there's a mixture of things there on the streaming services, but it is older films that have more got my eye on this coming week. So now it's time for our neat things. And of course, we do this at the end of every show where we tell you about things that we've seen, read, ate, enjoyed. As long as it's neat to us, we're going to tell you about it. And Andy, in your busy surgical uh, week. Have you had a chance to have neat things? I'm going a bit different with my neat thing this week. It's not something I've read. It's not something I've watched. It's something that has meant a lot to me. And that's all of you guys. That's all of you. Be it friends and colleagues from work, be it Lee at the other end of this microphone or when he swung, swung by on that surprise visit to drop off some Blu-rays for me. It's you listeners out there who've got in touch to wish me well. It's the people out there on Twitter who've been like sending best wishes and like hoping like for good recovery. It's everyone out there who has sent me positive thoughts over this past few weeks while I've been all over the place. And it's really, really meant a lot to me. You guys are my neat thing. I do this show with Lee, because, as Lee said so many times, because we just enjoy talking about film. We have fun talking about film. But to realise that, as Lee keeps referring to us, we're a family, 
we have built up a family and all you people who just know some of you don't even know me in real life you only know me through the show and yet you're you're getting in touch with me and you're saying i hope everything goes well i'm glad that's going well you take your time relaxing and that really really does mean a lot and that is the best neat thing that i could have asked for over this past month bravo sir that's really well said and and i was gonna i should have you know, known what your neat thing is, and, uh, and I was going to do something that completely opposite. Which you was said a... this. You said this off air that we always catch it. We never tell each other <laughs> no, what neat things are. It was a surprise. <laughs> that, that's that's really beautiful. And yeah, uh, I saw some of the comments that you were you were leaving for Andy, and uh, uh, I know it meant the world to him. Um, how do I follow that? Well, I'm, uh, uh, something as well very heartfelt. Uh, my neat thing. So, a couple of months ago, I told you about the sad passing of uh, my dear friend Keith Williams on the 19th of August it was his birthday and so I decided to celebrate now Keith left me in his will thousands of DVDs (laughs) and Blu-rays that I'm working my way through those are some of the ones that I dropped off for Andy but one of his all-time favorite films was Stanley Kramer's 1963 film it's a mad 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 world so if you don't know it, it is uh, uh, it's one of those that used to be one of those films that, that appeared at, on Easter TV or, or Christmas TV. And I, it's a it's an unlikely story after witnessing a dying man's confession, hinting at hidden treasures with treasure buried under what all we know is a huge W. Uh, a group of motorists turn against each other, often in their mad rush to try and get the money. And it's a story about greed and it's incredibly over the top and it stars a lot of very famous comedians of the time. So you've got Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, Mickey Rooney, Phil, the great Phil Silvers, Terry Thomas, Jonathan Winters. If you ever were into Robin Williams and you need to know who Jonathan Winters was. And it's just a ridiculous film. From a technical point of film, the film was promoted as the first film made in one projector Cinemarama. So the original Cinemarama process required three separate cameras and three process reels were projected by synchronized projectors on one huge canvas, one huge screen. So it's it's absolutely unique as being one of those the those movies of its time. So you films like The Greatest Story Ever Told, for instance, Battle of the Bulge, um, two thousand and one were all done in in Cinemarama. Uh, but it was just a beautiful tribute to sit and watch. Uh, uh, my friend's favourite film. And while it started out and it felt very dated, uh, both me and the kiddo really got into it. And it is just a piece of genius filmmaking of its time. So that's my neat thing, was uh, was was basically giving something back to a friendship and, and enjoying a very, very silly film from uh, a very particular part of Hollywood filmmaking. Bravo. Great film. It is. We should we should deep dive it because it's there's a lot to say about the whole the whole movie. Well, that's us done, folks. That's us done for uh, another week. It's great to be back and doing this properly. Uh, you know, we we always keep the keep the show going in some form or another if we can't do it. And um, we, we never want to cheat you out of just doing something second rate. So 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 thanks for sticking around for a week when at least we got to talk about um, the sad passing of William Friedkin mm-hmm. gave chance for Andy not to have the pressure on to do all the editing <laughs> for a change. And it's great to have you back, buddy. It's good to be back. And um, whilst I've still got pain, you know, it's, I've got a, 
I've got a couple of weeks recovery period before I'm no longer going to be aches and pains. But that's what happens when you have surgery. Uh, but I'm, I've got my appetite back. I'm feeling better. It is interesting that um, the surgeon said that sometimes when he's removed gallbladders, they remove it and they just go, well, that looks perfectly healthy. It wasn't really necessary for surgery. But with my one, there was signs of further infection already starting and further inflammation. So it would have only been a matter of weeks and I would have collapsed again. And he just said, like, it was absolutely the right decision that you were going to get this removed. Everything's turned out rosy, I think. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll be back again next week. But before we go, don't bother to buckle up. You may not want to survive this. Basically, every day I'm wanting to watch something new, but also finish the day with something familiar, which is why I've done Rocky Horror Picture yeah. Show, Silent Movie, The Descendants, uh, Cliffhanger. Obviously, we're talking about that this week. And Casino. They were, they were the familiar whilst I was padding out with like as much stuff that I've wanted to tick off for a while as I could. Cool. Well, we've got, we'll always have plenty to talk about. And I've, and I've finished watching a few TV services. I've caught up on a few shows. Well, Ooh, that's baby. what I've been doing. I'm starting some new ones. Finally got the last episode of Ted yeah. Lasso, which was, um, which was a deliberate to hold yeah. on and hold on rather than just throw it away. Find the right night to yeah. do it. Because uh, I finished uh, watching. Um... Started on Smigadoon based <laughs> on your. I love Smigadoon. Yeah, we. I, you know what? I, as I've said many times, I'm not a massive binger, but we binged three episodes <laughs> in one night. When I, I f- finished the interview with the vampire, uh, but yeah, it was really good. Oh, it's a it's a really solid adaptation of the books while doing its own thing at the same time. It's very smart in the way they've done it. Uh, I watched Twisted Metal series, which okay. is fun. It's as much fun as you expect yeah. from like people who gave us the Deadpool movies. So you know, it, it's witty. It's uh, post-apocalyptic brutality, and it taps into the video game nicely towards the end. Oh, cool. Um, looking forward to season two of that. Uh, I've just been ticking off like as many shows as like shows that had started and not finished as well. I've been like, right, let's get these done. We, we really should be recording this. <laughs> <laughs> this really should be part of the show. Well, it is recording. If I can find a slot to drop it into, I'll just drop it in. <laughs> I'll, I'll tag it on as an outtake at the end. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Get back a chocolate off. Weed. If you've got to do that, I'm getting out of the bath. <laughs> Okie dokie. So let's move on to what we're doing in this week's show. And please don't leave Okie dokie in. <laughs> Okie dokie. Because <laughs> I don't know why I said that. So as is this, as is this, this is as. As is this. Oh, I can't speak. I don't know why. So. I wish I'd stop doing so. I had to, I mean, the amount of times so. I edited out <laughs> so when I did that that episode. So, ah, oh, I've did it again. So, it starred Sylvester. Sylvester, oh, why can't I speak today? Cliffhanger. So hold on tight. Cliffhanger. That was a cliffhanger song. It was. <laughs> you Cliff- might not remember it from the film because it wasn't <laughs> yeah, in there. Yes, it was in the extended <laughs> cut <laughs> streaming services but it is older films that have more got my eye on this coming yeah. week ice cream ice, ice, cream. ice cream ice cream ice cream ice cream